I think, you know, the, the main lessons would be if you want to be a good leader, you've got to beat the drum over and over and over. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. I just wrapped an interview with Matt Zalkin, guys. This was an 11 for me. I enjoyed this for some reasons that I hope are gonna be obvious. Matt is a baller. We covered a lot of ground and we did a mile a minute. Again, it was an 11, maybe 12 for me. I hope you enjoyed it too. Check it out. Matt, thanks for coming on. I wanna tee up right out of the gate your background on the business. Where is your business at today? Size, scope, staff members? So we just executed a an acquisition in Northwest Arkansas. We are now at 2,250 doors. We've got 70 full-time colleagues. Um, what else did you want to know? How many markets? So we're in three markets. We're in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and all around Northwest Arkansas, Fayetteville, Rogers, Bentonville. What's the distribution? How many of how much of the business is in the original primary market? Uh, I think four, we have fourteen fifty in Tulsa, six hundred in uh, Oklahoma City, and the rest in Northwest Arkansas. I mean, we our, our Tulsa growth has been kind of flat because I sold a hundred multifamily doors across two buildings this year, and so we we dropped those and then have kind of recouped to to fill that gap over the last few months. What's velocity like overall? How many properties are you adding per year ballpark? I mean, it's been insane lately. I think Oklahoma city added 250 or 300 doors in the last quarter, some of those multifamily. So it, it, it skews the numbers a little bit, but we generally add 25 or 30 doors per market per month. Let's rewind the tape. How'd you get in the business? You know, I was living in Dubai. I I spent six years in Dubai, and in Dubai, if you're if you're an American, uh, Americans are some of the only people that pay income tax while they're living abroad full time. So there's a foreign earned income exclusion, which means you don't pay tax on your first like hundred and fifty thousand dollars of income or something. So I took all this money that I wasn't paying a tax, and I sent it home to my sister, and she was uh, an agent in Boulder, Colorado at the time, and um, uh, we just started buying houses, and so I. I was helping her manage these properties. She was on site. I was kind of, uh, you know, in Dubai doing some of the strategy and thinking and acquisition work. And then when I moved back to the United States, um, some years later, cause I found my wife or who would eventually be my wife. Um, I thought what's synergistic to my goals of owning more property. How can we, uh, have, have a business that allows me to, you know, earn an income that is not based on the pr on property ownership and also, um, be kind of in the flow of property ownership. And it was, it was a, a very clear that property management was a, was a great synergistic business. So I moved to Tulsa, started buying houses. They were, you know, as opposed to the Boulder houses that are 4,000 or $4,500 a month in rent. These were, you know, people were at 350 in rent, $400 in rent. I knew I had to bump them up, but I needed a system to keep track of the nonsense, the riffraff that was just, you know, prevalent in the the, the houses I was buying at the time, fast forward. I mean, I bought a house, I bought a fiveplex for 55 grand, just anecdotally in 2017, just got appraised at like uh 155 or something. So there's been significant growth in, um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma as well. 
uh, as every other market in America, I guess. But um, I needed a system really to keep track of all those residents that were in those properties because I was buying a different caliber of property. And then I just, I, I looked around and I didn't find a compelling reason to use somebody else. I didn't find any anybody else that was on the kind of leading edge of technology. I do think Tracy strikes a great operator on our market, but, um, you know, I, I decided to go it alone and we just built from there and it kind of took off. So this is a common story of <clears throat> managing your own properties, then pivoting into third party management. Yeah. What do you believe is the benefit? What's the upside? There are some downsides. The downsides that I've seen is that sometimes the empathy results in having a business model that is not as robust as it could be resistance towards thinking about revenue maximization. But obviously, there's a lot of upsides. In your mind, what is the upside of having that DNA of being an investor yourself? What has it done for the business? I mean, you understand the pain of somebody driving by your property and breaking your window. It's not the tenant's fault. It's not your fault. It's some some idiot that did something stupid. You understand the pain of replacing an HVAC system. You understand the pain of needing a new roof and the decision of whether you patch a roof and you throw good money after bad or you replace the roof and do it right the first time. So, you know, I think having having that fundamental understanding helps you empathize with clients a lot more. Um, I also think... Um, that many owners, many property owners understand the business of contracting better than just pure investors. So, I mean, I did a lot of contracting work going into this. And so I can walk into a house and go, you know, flooring, $2,600, painting, $2,000, HVAC, now now at $9,500, but formerly at $6,000. Uh, I mean, you can go in and just, ha you have a better understanding of, of uh, the drivers of value and the cost centers in a house. And uh, I think that's, you know, many investors and many PM owners don't, property management company owners don't fundamentally know that. Let's keep it low to the ground. Talk to me about working with and managing vendors. What's your philosophy of how to find the right and work with vendors? <laughs> so I talk to vendors all the time. I love talking to vendors. They're the salt of the earth. I just, you know, I, they're, they're like my people. Um, I sometimes get on a call with a vendor at like five o'clock at night on a Friday and my wife's in the car and I'm like, just, we're just, you know, ripping back and forth. And my wife's like, please get off the phone. Cause these are, these really are people that are, they're, they're doing the work they're doing the work every single day and their livelihood depends on it. My philosophy is your vendor is your, your vendor network is your lifeblood. Um, treat them well, treat them with respect and they will do the same to you. So I, I never ask, you know, I don't, I don't stiff my vendors. I, I, we pay them every Friday. Um, I should say we pay them every Thursday money's in their account every Friday. Um, if, if, if our vendor does something wrong or we do something wrong and they don't catch it, we're going to split the money 50, 50. So I'm never going to leave a vendor out to, to dry. Um, because I, I, you know, everybody makes mistakes. We're all human. And I think that, you know, we all need to be accountable, but I certainly think that, that we share in any, in any situation, we share responsibility and we should share benefit as well. Um, so I, my philosophy is just, you know, our vendors are our gold and, and we need to take care of them. We like to go really, really deep with vendors. So I don't want to have 15 plumbing vendors that kind of know our name. I want to know two vendors that are hundred percent or 90% dependent on key render for their livelihood. That's my philosophy. And I say, let me pay you really well, or let me pay you fairly and up slightly above fairly for you to do a great job and be hyper responsive. And instead of going out and spending a ton of money on Google and marketing and, and, you know, spending 40% of your time bidding jobs and whatever else, we're going to give you all of that. You're going to make more money than you could make otherwise, but you're going to give our owners a very fair price for what you're doing. And 
I don't then have to question whether they're overbilling. I don't have to question whether they're uh, making stuff up because I can look at their queue and go, they're six or seven or 12 or 15 days behind on work. They don't need to make stuff up to to have more work. They've got plenty of work. All I need them to do is be able to efficiently go from spot to spot to spot. What does responsiveness mean to you? What kind of a time? Oh my God. I mean, think about how a pl- if you call a plumber and you say there's a leak at a severe leak at a house and it's growing an inch an hour. If you have a plumber that can drop what they're doing right now, because they're, you're their, you are their world, you're their business. They can drop what they're doing right now where they're, you know, in some concrete in a slab leak at another house, but the water's turned off and it's not doing damage right now and get to that other property in, in half an hour. Think about the amount of money that your owner saves in foregone damage and cost. They, I mean, what happens when you have a water leak? You, it goes up the wall, it wicks up the sheetrock. If it gets through the, you know, if it gets up a little bit and your baseboard isn't covering that little portion of sheetrock, it wicks up the sheetrock. You have to cut out sheetrock up to three or four feet. You've got to bring fans in to dry it. You've got to stop the leak, by the way. Um, you have cabinets that you have to pull out. And that means you have countertops that you have to pull out. That means you've got backsplash that you may have to pull out. I mean, you could have a leak that does 10 or $15,000 worth of damage. And if you can have a plumber over there in half an hour or 40 minutes to stop that damage, you have just saved your owner a tremendous amount of money. Now your owner won't know that your owner's likely not going to know that you just saved them $15,000, but what you're going to feel and what your owner's going to feel is a lower rate of churn in your business. We decided years ago that we wanted to put a plumber on retainer on staff because, Um, We were unable to find plumbers that would do a $65 exterior hose bib change out. They were so busy doing full replums, doing slab leaks, doing hot water tank change outs that they just didn't have time or the desire to do a $65 job. What I know is a tenant that's that a tenant that's paying $700 a month in rent and has a drippy faucet that's costing them $50 a month in rent, 8% of their monthly rent will leave they'll leave if you don't fix their drippy faucet. But the owner doesn't understand why they left. The owner says, uh, my tenant went to Las Vegas. My tenant went to Dallas for a new job. Um, And then they incur a month of vacancy and some repair costs. If you can just fix that hose bib, you will retain tenants. They feel respected. Their bill goes down and they'll stay in a property. That helps you. It helps the owner dramatically, but the owner never really knows that situation. There are things that we can do in this business that help tremendously. And they eventually will come back to you and help you because you have an extra month of management fees, but it's really much more for the, for the ownership of the asset, but they'll, they also will help you, but there are little things that will, that can drive efficiency in your business, help earn incremental money. And just fundamentally, it's a better way of operating. Think about the difference also of a tenant moving out and a tenant staying for the, the, the manager of the property. If I have to do, if I have to handle a move out, do an inspection, do the painting, the upgrade work, the turn, get it back on the market, hang a lockbox, uh, take new photos, potentially do like 15 different things. It's much more challenging for me than just sending a plumber that will actually do the work. That's intuitively makes sense. It logically makes sense, but it's hard to get that plumber out there to do the work. So we, I said, let's just hire a plumber. Is he going to be, are we going to make a lot of money hiring a plumber? No. Is there a ton of risk on that? Because, you know... Once you put somebody on W2, they're fundamentally not hustling as hard as, as if they were a contract plumber that was, that was, you know, doing this for their livelihood. Yes. Is there more risk because we now have the general liability insurance that we have to cover, et cetera? Yes. But you know what? It's a, it's a, even if a pure break, even or I lose a little bit of money, I'd much rather have that headache than the headache of the turnover, a headache of owners leaving when they, when they feel that there's, you know, too much turnover at their property, et cetera. So our vendors are our lifeblood. 
hands down our best folks. <clears throat> so you're focused on managing retention. What's interesting to me is that you're this low to the ground at the scale that you're at. Talk to me about what being low to the ground looks like in terms of the conversation with the owners. What kind of a conversation are you having with the owner that might be distinct from the, and I'm talking about with prospective owners, what does that conversation look like that may be different in your organization versus the conversation that, that another property management company in your market might be having with a prospective owner? So honestly, I don't have that many conversations with owners. I, as I say that, I realize my calendar on Thursday is like, I've got one on Thursday morning at eight 30 and I've got one on Thursday afternoon. I'm really asking organizationally, on organizationally so, though. So uh, the, I don't know how our conversations with owners differ from, um, other PMCs in our market. Honestly, I think we focus very heavily on, on leasing properties quickly on professional photos, on, um, marketing channels that we use, which is, which are something we use Zillow, right? I mean, Zillow rental network is the most effective, uh, leasing tool that we have. Um, I don't think we're, I don't think we are focusing on what differentiates us as a management company. I think we just focus on answering the phone because if an owner calls you and you answer the phone, they're more likely to, to, to work with you. We often get people that say, or when I was actually doing sales, I'd get a phone call that said, wow, you're the eighth person that I've called and the first person to pick up in terms of property management companies. And I go, wow, I wish we weren't the eighth person that you called, but I'm glad that we're the first person that picked up. I mean, so I think a lot of it's just speed. If they know you answer the phone for them, they likely know that you also answer the phone for tenants. Matt, this is really interesting. It's almost a little surreal for me. I'm hearing a deep level of unconscious competence here <laughs> for, for, for somebody else to think that, ah, oh, I just need to pick up the phone. I'm going to add 250 units in a year. Like th there's clearly more here, brother. Like, like, okay. What? So, so I think it starts with answering the phone. It also goes to, um, kind of the level of service that you can provide to an owner. But that's, I don't think we, I don't necessarily know if we sell that to a prospective owner. What we sell to an owner is, um, you can bring a property in any condition to us. You can bring us the keys of a turnkey, brand new capital homes, $260,000 house, and we'll rent it. You can also bring us a wholesale deal that is a burn unit, and we'll do all of the work. As long as there's money in the bank account, we will do all of the work will make it look like this, this, or this, um, which is our core, one of our core competencies. We've got a general contractor on staff. We've got a huge network of vendors that love to work with us for all the men, all the reasons I just mentioned. Um, and we'll make it into a really nice place and your numbers will look fantastic. In fact, that's the riskier, this end of the spectrum is the, is the riskier play, but where you earn far more money, right? The return Upside is much higher. higher. Correct. Um, so I think in anywhere in between, you want us to just do like painting and hang blinds, we'll do it. So we've got, you know, I originally went out of my way to say to clients, we'll do anything that makes your life easier. And our kind of mission statement is taking the headache out of real estate ownership for our owners. So anything that we can do to make your life easier to own real estate, because you appreciate the asset class you appreciate the depreciation, the interest expense, the other things that it can do for you, but you don't want to be involved any more than you're involved in your stock portfolio. Mm -hmm. You don't manage Coca-Cola on a daily basis, but you might own the stock. We can do that for you. So, you know, I, I want to make it as easy as humanly possible. And I want to be your one-stop shop for, for referrals in the, in my markets. So if you need insurance, I'm going to send you to state farm. Chris Lyle is a great guy. He's a friend of mine and he does all of our insurance and he's incredibly responsive. It also 
works such that if you, you know, have a, a huge relationship with one company, they're more likely to look out for you. Um, we do, we, you know, we send all of our attorney work to one guy we do. Um, and it hasn't always been that way, right? We've gone through multiple people to get to the right vendor for referral sources, but I want to make sure that when somebody calls me, they know through me, they can get to every other part of the equation. Mm. their banker they can get to mm. multiple bankers they can get to insurance everything else so that's part of it is like how can i just be helpful we may never work together you may decide that you know somebody else is a at two percent cheaper on the management cost is the right way to go for you i'm still going to be as helpful as i possibly can and hopefully you recognize at some point that the people that are charging less money are less helpful they're less intelligent they're less successful they're less effective they're less whatever their philosophy is wrong they're not charging the right amount because they don't value their own services. So that's, I mean, my fundamental philosophy has always been whether it's giver's gain, which is the BNI philosophy or the go giver philosophy, which is the, you know, based on the book, the go giver, Lisa Goins on my team, um, passed to us some years ago and the entirety of my team has read, read it. It's a fable. It's an amazing story about, um, you know, success in the business world. I think you must be both willing to give and willing to receive. And so, you know, I just think the more you're willing to be helpful and I'll tell you a funny story now. Um, I had a client that came to us with uh, a renovation project in one. And he said, Hey, I'm going to, I think I'm going to have my, my vendors out of Colorado do this project. Um, and I said, well, I, you know, I don't think it makes that much sense to bring your vendors from Colorado into, into Tulsa, Oklahoma. We have better priced vendors here and they don't have to, they can go home and sleep with their family every night. They don't have to like stay in a hotel or stay in, in this half remodeled unit. He said, well, let me do this one myself and I'll, I've got 27 other units that are in the works and I'll bring those to you. And I said, well, if you have 27 that you want to, you know, shop us with, you might as well try us with one unit. And if you want to divorce us after one unit, it's much easier than divorcing us after you've, you've given us 27 and then you realize that you don't want to work with us. So um, we, we did the work on the first. It was beautiful. We got insane rents. Owner had to lift not a single finger. He paid money for the, for the construction. It was beautiful. Granite countertops, can lights, a really, really nice renovation, but we went over budget. We didn't, at that time, we didn't recognize in our spreadsheets, we were kind of young working with a new team of general contract, working with Seth, who had joined my team. We didn't put a, a, a number for materials. So we went over budget. So he came, a client came back to us and said, I love you guys. Everything you did was fantastic. You got over the rents that you promised me you'd get. The renovation looks beautiful. You fixed more stuff than you were going to fix, but you went over budget. Now these 27 units, I can't afford for you to go over budget on the 27 units. I said, you're absolutely right. We totally screwed up. No problem. Take the 27 units somewhere else. So he did. He comes back to me like two months later and he says, you know, obviously the property management company that we're working with is not doing that great of a job. I, you know, I'm in with them now. I don't know what to do. I gave him an hour. I sit with him for an hour. I mean, I happen to like the guy, right? So it's also, you know, you spend time with people that you enjoy spending time with. So I, I say, you know, client, I'm, I'm, here's what I would do. Here's how I think about it. Um, this, that, and the other. And, and he said, you know, at the end of the conversation, he said, you know what? I'm buying one more unit that I've been kind of working on for the last little bit. Let me give that one to you and give you another shot. So in that, in, in a couple of phone conversations that I talked to him for an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, you know, and by the way, when you like somebody, you don't just talk about work, you talk about family, you talk about other stuff. Um, but in an hour and 15 minutes, he makes the decision in his head that, you know, I add enough value from a strategic perspective that he should bring the rest of his units over. And I suspect at some point he probably will, but certainly we've got the first one that we did. He never took it away. And the second one is actually just, uh, the water was turned on today cause it was a weird rural Oklahoma situation that we couldn't get the water turned on, but now the water's on, we'll get photos, we'll get cleaned and photos. And it is a fantastic renovation that Seth did. So I suspect that over time, he'll bring the rest of them back. Mm. And that's a good story of like, we lost a business. We, we went over budget, totally understand why we lost. 
He took it somewhere else. They're not adding as much value as we add on the contracting side, on the leasing side, on, on a, a bunch of different places that we add value. They don't add value. It eventually will come back to us, but it can't, it will come back to us because I'm unabashed in offering my, whatever it is, time, expertise, um, in the form of advice and, and helping him get back on track with whatever he's trying to get back on track with. That was an incredibly satisfying answer. Fundamentally, you're talking about playing the long game. Let's translate this to doing it at scale. Everything you just articulated, somebody else could have that same will bent philosophy, and yet they might fundamentally lack the capacity to scale it. They have those feelings. They're willing to do it. They have no idea how to do that through the agency sure. of 10, 20, 30, 40 people. Talk to me about your experience and your philosophy of building an organization to do this at scale. I mean, look, first and foremost, we rely on other incredibly capable people. I've got a, a, a leadership team that is that has expertise in from the technical side of property management through growing an organization and hiring and, and, and firing um, very capable and qualified people underneath them. And then we've got an amazing sales staff. And I think if you, if the philosophy permeates the organization, in other words, if the philosophy of givers gain and just give and give and give, because you are an expert in this market and you're, you can, you can give and equip or a soundbite what takes somebody a year to come to realize you'll always win. It doesn't matter whether the business comes to you today, the reputation will build, right? So, you know, we do this, we do these, um, based on Scott Brady's little, uh, package, we do a, a, a landlord, you know, self-managing landlord seminar. And so we'll have a couple times a year, we'll have 30, 40 people bring in lunch and let them, uh, kind of peel back the, the curtain, so to speak, and teach them about managing their property or properties. And um, in that act, in that effort, you introduce people to the fact that you are a leader in the market, the fact that you're an expert, et cetera. And they may not come to you immediately, but they'll remember who you were or who you are. So when they do want to trans, when they do, when somebody comes to them for a referral of a property management company, they're definitely going to remember you because you added significant value to their lives, portfolio, business, whatever it is. And then, you know, when if if and when they ever want to, uh, you know, move away from self-managing their properties, they're going to remember who you were. And another example is we had a guy come into one of these uh, self-managing owner uh, lectures some, some, I don't know, probably three years ago at this point. He ended up buying 260 or 270 houses from um, the Tulsa Housing Authority in a big transaction or multiple transactions. And originally we were on the phone with the Tulsa Housing Authority acting as the would be property manager. He ended up not coming to us. He said, look, now I have 270 properties. I'll probably just build this organization myself. No problem. In general, one of the philosophies is like people will, people will do what's best for themselves. And oftentimes that will be a part of that will be to use your services with, you know, with ill intent or to, to, to tell you one thing and they're going to actually going to do something else. And I say that's business. You've taken the choice when you, when you have any conversation, you've taken the choice to spend your time in pursuit of a goal. That's a business expense. If they don't use your services and they, and they use you and they say that, you know, you're going to be part of the management team for, for, you know, the greater good of acquiring a property or whatever else. And they don't, I say, that's a, a risk we take. And I wouldn't hold resentment for it. Wouldn't behave vindictively. I just think it's a, it's just part of doing business. So he comes to me some two months ago, three months ago and says, now I've got these properties. We've built our team, but I'm, I'm trying to decide whether I still want to do this. It's a pain in the butt every single day. We don't have the process down. We don't have the systems down. I said, come into the office. I'll teach you everything we do because fundamentally he's not going to want to do it forever. 
maybe he'll want to come back. But nobody, it's not rocket science to build Appfolio, to use Lead Simple, to, to, to go through uh, lead sources if you want to acquire new stuff. But if you already have 270, you're not going anywhere further. It's not rocket science to, to integrate that through to, a, you know, to have the, the process. It's not, it just takes time to build. So even with that time to build, you still need the willpower the 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 will to do the hard work because it's all hard work it's just using systems to arbitrage some of the effort so even if i teach him all the systems in five years he's not going to want to do the hard work because he's still going to be involved in the day-to-day business because he doesn't know how to extricate himself from from sending a five-day pay or quit notice or he doesn't have the relationships because a lot of the relationships don't come at 270 doors they come at 500 or a thousand or two thousand doors our ability to to you know, submit a, uh, the paperwork for an eviction or to go to mediation or to, you know, have a plumber on staff or whatever else comes with bigger numbers than 270. So I figure, let me show you everything that we do. If you want to build it, if you want to spend the, the time and effort to do a, a lead simple operations integration, if you want to do that, then, you know, when you start at 270 and you go to a thousand, that will have been time very well spent. If you want to stay at 270, it might not have been as, as well spent. Um, if you want to do a HubSpot integration that costs you a ton of money, you know, at scale, it works without scale. It doesn't Appfolio means Appfolio requires you to have 50 doors to start for somebody that manages five properties. They either have to fabricate 45 doors or they're not going to use Appfolio. Those are all systems that we benefit. The arbitrage is, a, is an amazing benefit and the technology arbitrage is an amazing benefit, but it's not for everybody. So I say, add whatever value you can and whatever capacity you can and that will come back to you at some point. And maybe not from that person. It's just a round robin, you know, it's the way the world works. Karma, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I love that share, the essence of the long game for sure. Talk to me about your growth as a manager. What lessons have you had to learn over time that have shaped the way that you manage your leadership team? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, I think, you know, the, the main lessons would be if you want to be a good leader, you've got to beat the drum over and over and over. And my team, you know, I, I love property management. Personally, I love property Clearly. management. So it's hard to, it's hard for me to, to, to extricate myself from the weeds. So if I see, I mean, yesterday I sent a, a message to a team member and I said, I saw you created a work order. Sorry. I actually, I did one thing better and I'll tell you why it's better. But I sent a message to a team member. I said, I saw this other team member of ours sent a work order out for a very simple cleaning, but the details on the property, how to get into the property are not there. This simple act of not putting, whether it's a digital lockbox and what the code is or an analog lockbox and what the code is, creates unknowing, unknowingly, I mean, this manager doesn't understand, but creates more headache for this, for this manager. Why? Well, the vendor that's gonna go clean has to make a decision about whether they're gonna go to that property today, tomorrow, whatever it is, when they're gonna schedule their time. If they don't see clear instruction on how to get into the house, and most of the time we have a lockbox in the house and we've got, it's digital, they can get into it, it's analog, they can get into it, our core vendors know our numbers and so it's not, it's not that big of a deal for them to get into the property. But if they have to question whether when they get to the house, drive 30 minutes across town to get to the house, to get into the house, they have access, they're gonna call this manager. And in the act of calling that manager is friction. And if he calls that manager and the manager answers and they get another, and the manager gets another phone call from an angry tenant in that moment, he's not gonna be able to answer that angry tenant. And that causes more friction and more chaos. And it's, it's, he then has to call that tenant back who's now left a nasty voicemail because he thinks you're avoiding him because, you know, on and on and on. And imagine if you're on the phone with the cleaner for two minutes, it could have multiple calls. So it's just, if you can solve simple issues from the start by putting a lockbox code, you 
potentially unknowingly solve a huge headache in your life. Now, I see that and I go, I've learned that as a manager, as a property manager. And because, by the way, people call me, you know, to tell me these things. Um, and I send a message to this manager's boss and say, hey, this is what I think should be happening. Can you cascade this to your team so that everybody knows that if you reduce little pieces of friction in the business, your life will be much easier. Mm-hmm. And that's what my team wants me to do. That's not what I always do. My team wants me to go to the supervisors, the the lead, the, the pro- senior property managers or their supervisors and say, hey, this is something I've been identified. Please cascade this down to your team. More often than not, I go directly to the manager and go, hey, fix this. But it's the wrong way to be. And if I can get myself, you know, and my team also says to me, you're like, you're, you're playing at the wrong level. You need to be playing here. You need to be focusing on further acquisitions. You need to be focusing on, on culture and core values. You need to be focusing on other things and cascading those messages. Don't tell a property manager how to put a lockbox entry code onto a work order. And I think they're right, but I also think we've got to get the small things right. And now I've changed my tune to say, let's get the small things right from the manager level, not from the property manager level. So from the, from the senior property manager level, cascading it down to seven or eight or 10 or 15 people, rather than me going to the one person, everybody else loses out on that, on that little, that little nugget that I've learned over multiple years of, you know, hard lessons. Speaking of multiple years of hard lessons, let's talk about the precursor of what you were doing in advance of being in property management. You managed doing management consulting. What organization? What did you learn? Were there any lessons from that phase of life that you feel like have informed your approach to your work now? Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny. I, so I, I graduated from school. Um, I graduated from grad school and went directly to the middle East. I was working in Dubai, living, uh, living in Dubai. And I was working at McKinsey, which is a very prestigious, famous management consulting business. Um, and I learned a, a bunch of wonderful lessons. One, I'm a terrible employee. Um, I just would never care about somebody else's baby the way I care about my own. Um, I think also there's a, there's a, uh, at McKinsey, it's an upper out policy. So you either succeed and you get promoted to the next level and everybody can kind of succeed together and the organization grows and, and everybody can be promoted or they counsel you to leave. They call it a CTL in, you know, the counseling to leave is the gener is the, is the most generous firing you can have. They say, look, between me and you, you're not going to be successful here. Long-term Take six months, a year. We're not going to, we're not going to leave you without a job try to do some stuff that's beneficial for the firm. We'll keep paying you. And eventually you'll find a job that's more fitting for you. And even though that's, that is the nicest way to fire somebody, it's still, there's an ego burn there, right? I mean, you still, you've been fired more or less. You've, you've been unsuccessful at what you're doing. And I found that I was unsuccessful because I never, like in hindsight, I didn't, the successful people spend every waking moment thinking about solving client issues. And I did not do that. I couldn't do it. I wasn't able to do it. Now I have my own business and I, and I understand other bosses. I mean, I went to another business and I can tell you about that in a second, but he would, Michael Lahiani would be thinking about his business at three o'clock in the morning when we'd be out at the club drinking, uh, you know, drinking and dancing. And I thought, that's incredible. How does he wake up at four in the morning and send me a text message or something that's on his mind? And now I understand when it's your business, when it's your baby, you spend all of your waking moments thinking about it. In fact, it's a distraction. You need to get away from that to spend more time with your family, theoretically. Right. But like, but it's, it's always on your mind and the best client service, uh, folks at McKinsey spend all of their time thinking about how they can make their clients lives better. Their clients' businesses better solve the problem at hand, et cetera. 
I wasn't that person. And so eventually I got fired. And, you know, it was, it's a rude awakening, but it's also, it also teaches you being fired, teaches you resilience. It teaches you uh, a bunch of interesting things. And one funny thing about property management is, you know, it hasn't always been a professional industry. It's been, it was always a profession or maybe it was always a profession. Many people stumble into it. Hey, like nobody else wanted to do it. So I was forced to do it. And then all of a sudden I realized I could make a little bit of money. And so I started, and then I realized there's NARPM and there's other conferences and we can learn how to do it better and more effectively. But it's not like a glorious industry. We're dealing with a million small issues. We're dealing with pissed off tenants, pissed off owners, et cetera. We often see, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take a property from a new owner and it will be, the handoff will be, will be between us and the real estate agent that did the transaction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they say to us like, you know, I've done all the, I've done all the, the really important work here. You know, like take the keys, you piddly property manager and, and you do the rest and all the stuff that's way below me. And I think there's like an ego element to that. And I learned from, from being fired from McKinsey. Um, there's a, there are, he who laughs last laughs the hardest. <laughs> like there are many ways to, to kind of subvert your ego so that you can go about your daily life and, um, and still be incredibly successful. You don't need to be successful at McKinsey to be successful at life. Mm. You don't need to be mm-hmm. successful in the eyes of the realtor that's handing you the keys to be successful in life. Everybody has their own path. And I just kind of laugh when, when they say, I, you know, I clip my $4,000 coupon. Uh, now you handle the rest of the kind of crappy work. I go, that person was a client of yours for a month. They'll be a client of ours for a decade. I will go about doing the lowly work of property management. Yes, sir. or Yes, ma'am. And it's a really fun, I just kind of think it's a fun uh, uh, perspective shift. So all that to say, I learned some great things from McKinsey. I went on to work for uh, a great company called Property Finder. They were the Zillow of the Middle East, for lack of a better term. Um, I was heading strategy at the time. So we did, um, we kind of got into some new markets. We expanded in new markets. We raised money from a venture firm. Um, and then, and I was traveling all over helping with operations and strategic projects. It was great. Um, and then I met my, uh, what would eventually be my wife or who would eventually be my wife, um, in Miami, um, and kind of was fast tracked on a, on a exit strategy from Dubai and went back, moved back to the United States. So carrying those lessons forward to what you're doing today in terms of your trajectory of where you want to take the business, things are obviously growing fast. And as things grow fast, there are more decisions that have to be made that are determinative of the future of the company. What is your vision for the organization? Where do you want to take it? Is it multiple markets? Is it getting big in a couple of markets? What's the future look like for the organization? You know, it's hard to grow a company quickly and also stay true to your core principles or your core values. It, it takes a very special person to be able to beat that drum over and over and over and to grow an organization that is, that fundamentally does it, you know, a thousand or a hundred times its original scale, what it did at, at original scale. I don't want to grow so fast that we lose the fundamental values of helping owners. I mean, of just helping owners. Um, and so I don't want to get to a point where we're, we're too focused on um, our own benefit, our own gain. I don't want to get to the point where we lose the ability to do the contracting work. That's the hard work that that helps owners, you know, get to the next level, build their scale, build their own portfolios. I don't want to get to the point where we become just another property management company. Um, and so I think let, 
I want to shore up our three markets right now, make sure that we're doing everything the right way consistently. And then should we grow? Probably. I mean, it makes sense for us to be in five or six or eight or 10 markets, but I don't want to do it at the expense of, of being a great company, a great company for our clients to do business with. So I think we'll probably slow our growth here for a little bit. I think we'll shore up our markets. I'd like to continue growing and be strong, being strong in our, in our current markets, make sure that we're doing things the right way. Um, and we'll take, we'll probably take growth if, and when it comes, um, through acquisition, a little opening little offices. Um, but I don't, you know, my, my goal is not to be, um, in, in probably 20 disparate markets. My goal is to be really strong in a few markets. Matt, what's your philosophy of personal investing agnostic of asset class? What's your, what's your view? What kind of drives how you think about investing? I mean, so my, my, my fundamental view is that if you are a real estate professional, depreciation, interest expense, passive, sorry, active loss from real estate is the most tax efficient way that you can offset active gains in real estate. So uh, in my case, you know, I'm an active, I'm a, uh, I work in property management. I invest in real estate because those two can, can offset each other gains and losses. You can take huge depreciation, especially in the state of Oklahoma, take huge depreciation, you can accelerate depreciation. Um, and so I, I like that as a, as an investment strategy because it mitigates my tax liability. Um, I also personally, I mean, I throw, you know, small checks into little venture funds that my friends are involved in. Um, I throw little, you know, small checks into what they call safes, the simple agreement for equity into small companies, um, that I believe in, but you know, all those are kind of, I think they're fun because you can stay relevant. You can understand what's going on in the, in the local economy and local venture world. Um, you've got more to talk about with your buddies. Like I just do it for fun because I think it's fun to, to, to kind of be in the flow a little bit. And I've got a little bit of extra cash, so I'm able to 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 put it in some fun places. Um, I've got a really close friend that does venture investing for a living, and a bunch of other friends that are kind of always involved tangentially with it. So it's just fun to um, to be able to you know write little checks so that you can you know BS with your buddies. And um, you know when we go skiing together, we all have we all have a little more uh, business focus. We can talk about that in addition to everything else we talk about. It just adds more content to life. I think it's just fun. Um, and you know, fundamentally, wouldn't you rather be, uh, either rich and old with friends or poor and old with friends? And if you ride together, you know, you, you, uh, the ups and downs are, are, are probably, uh, more bitter and more sweet, but at least you've got people that are, that you're doing it with. That's more or less my philosophy. So you're all in on business. It's a kind of an all consuming focus. I love what you articulated previously about being obsessed. My reflections about being obsessed are less that I'm not trying to be obsessed. I have an obsessive nature. And if I could dial that back, I would, it would be satisfying at times to have that dialed back, but it's there. So really the question is, can I direct it? Can I direct it something where I have meaning, significance, there are things, there are activities, hobbies that do allow me to turn it off a bit, that do allow me to be fully focused and engaged in something that is not an explicitly commercial pursuit. Yeah. I crave and I desire those moment, those moments. I know that you fly, you appreciate aviation. Is aviation one of those things for you that allows you to direct that focus elsewhere? 
Yeah, I mean, I think when you're on short final into a runway that you've never been to, there's very little room for thinking about other things other than getting your gear down and making sure that your power setting is right to <laughs> to land an aircraft and keep your family safe. So yeah, in a sense, you know, I ski. I think skiing is a kind of all all consuming mental exercise when you're trying to pick a line and and go as quickly as you can. And and flying for me is that. I also think um, I know that I'm I know that I'm weak. I know that I have a problem with maintaining my focus on things like my family when I'm at home, when business I and mean, my mind can go to business. So I've had to train my team, train myself to not trigger me in a way that will pull me away from Don't my family. Don't throw out the carrot. Exactly. Because somebody would send, so we, you know, there, there aren't that many people still in our company that can transfer money in the bank. So if I see a request for money to transfer in the bank that says, Hey, we need to shore up this trust account or this, I'll think I'm playing in a room with my children. For example, my phone goes, Zzz. Now I leave my phone just by, for anecdotally, I leave my phone in the other room when I get home. I sleep with my phone in the other room. So I've done a lot of things to, to improve or, or to fight this uh, propensity of mine mm -hmm. to create distance, exactly. So it doesn't beep anymore, it doesn't buzz anymore, but it, previously it would, it would go and I'd pull it out and it would be transfer money. And I think, oh, that's about a 60 second task. It's a quick win, dopamine hit. I go boom and I'd get into, my, into the banking app and I'd try to change it. And four minutes later, I would have realized that this scenario had changed. My kids have left the room. The, you know, I'm daddy's on the phone. I don't want to be that person. I'd much rather be engaged with my family, but I'm addicted. And now it's a sickness and I have to just do things that help me compensate for that sickness. So I tell my team, Hey, no longer, please don't send me an email that says, move this money. We'd now go through a flow and there's, I can check it once a month and I can move all the money that needs to be moved. And does it take me a miserable hour? Yes. But does it prevent me from taking four minutes when I thought it was going to be a minute of distraction from my family during family time? Absolutely. And that's worth all its weight in gold. So I think we have to be cognizant of the things that are that are distracting to us. We might focus, I might be sitting there with my family and I can't stop my brain from going to a thought about work and my wife will pull me back. Um, which sometimes can be annoying because you actually, you're like, oh, I was onto something there. But still, I mean, she pulls you back into family time and, and I think that's great. You can't stop that propensity of your brain to go to a place that is uh, business focused or whatever else, but you can limit the number of distractions that bring you to that place, specifically on, specifically on tasks. I know there's so much that we, I assume that we both want to pass down to our kids, so much that is relationally, so much that is interpersonal. The reality is business does factor into legacy for you. How do you see that factoring in, if at all, what do you want to pass down to your kids that is derivative of the business? I mean, I think business is hard and it requires hard work. There's a friend of mine that a friend of mine got me a quote that is the attributed to Thomas Edison and says a lot of people, what is the exact quote? It says, um, uh, a lot of people miss opportunity because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. I mean, I think that is success in business requires hard work. It requires relationships and a lot of other people. Um, and I think, you know, Warren Buffett used to say or says about his kids, he bought his son a farm and mm -hmm. said, don't, don't compete with me in the world of investment because you're not going to win. Mm. But, you know, if you want to be a farmer and you, and you want to pursue that passion, let me buy you a farm. But he says, fundamentally, I want my kids to have enough to do anything, but not enough to do nothing. You know, I think my, my kids need to, I would love to pass on a legacy of, of not painfully hard work, but like, you know, for success, you need work. Mm -hmm. And that's something I struggle with because I think you can, you can get into a, 
you can get into a, a paradigm where you're giving your kids everything and you want to give your kids everything. And I've got three daughters. It is incredibly difficult. Same to here, no man. Them. Super relatable. It's, it's hard, but you want to at some point say no and say, no, you've got to go you know, work for this. And my dad was incredibly generous when I was a kid. But if I asked for money, he would say, do you have a job? <laughs> if I didn't have a job, he wasn't giving me any, any money. If I had a job, the money was fairly free flowing right? The money that you earn, you can put into a savings account and you can save up for whatever you want to buy. Mm -hmm. In that moment, you want to go to the movies, here's your cash. If you don't have a job, and I clearly you don't have respect for a dollar and I'm not giving any of mine. So I think there's, there's a, a great lesson in that. My father is a great father. Um, um, a lot of sage wisdom and advice and, and, and that, you know, I learned, uh, I have learned and I continue to learn a ton from my dad, but I think that's the legacy you want to pass is, um, or the legacy that I would want to pass is um, hard work, is the byproduct of success. Sorry, rather that success requires hard work. Um, there's no free lunch in life and it's all built on kind of relationships. People, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. And I, I think back to times when we started Key Renner in Tulsa and we, you know, we were kind of scrapping, scraping by fighting for our, our first couple of doors. And I was, when I moved to Tulsa, I was living in my father-in-law's uh, like upstairs garage apartment. My wife who had come from Beverly Hills to move to Tulsa, you know, she was happy. Her, Tulsa's her family home. So she, she's happy there, but she was living in a beautiful apartment in Beverly Hills. Now she's sleeping on a mattress on the floor at her parents' uh, upstairs garage apartment. She's not very happy with me. I'm asking her not to buy Starbucks because, you know, it was, it was more expense than I wanted to, to commit to at the time. And fundamentally, my philosophy was like every time we buy a $3 coffee as opposed to, you know, putting Folgers in the old thing, like you're, you're taking us further from our goals of <laughs> buying more real estate. Nice. Uh, I'm sure that went over <laughs> real well. She's going, wait, I've got the same salary I've always had. Why do I have to not buy Starbucks? We'll pick it back up here. Nobody has a crystal ball, but what are you thinking is likely to happen over the next 24 months? What are the contingencies you're preparing for in terms of the macroeconomic outlook, a potential shift? How does it impact your business? What do you see in the future? Yeah. Um, I, honestly, I have no idea. If, if I, I have no idea. I think as interest rates tick up, there are a couple of interesting things that happen. One kind of retail end user buyers are less likely they can buy less mass. I mean, they can buy less dollar amount of house. And so many of the investors that are, that have pulled money out, sold properties in California and Washington state in Phoenix and other places are sitting on cash waiting to deploy it will now have more of an opportunity to deploy it. So instead of being 12th in line, uh, you know, making an offer that's, you know, 10,000 above asking and, and all cash and gets rejected They're you know, now first or second in line, uh, to make an all cash offer and get accepted. That's number one. Um, they're less sensitive to the, to the numbers in other words, than an end user that, you know, is saying I can afford $2,000 a month, principal interest tax insurance. And when interest rates tick up that, you know, principal interest number, uh, gets higher, that component gets higher and I therefore can't afford as much house. So less competition. I'm just hopeful because we have so many investors that have been trying to get in for so long and, and, and have not been able to, they just, every, everything gets outbid and every, every deal that they try to do gets, gets swiped out from under them. Um, and then we have great relationships with banks whose cost of capital will remain the same in any, in any economic environment. So they get money from, from the Indian tribe, uh, from the Indian nations that do, um, mm -hmm. uh, casinos. Mm -hmm. And so their cost of funds are at, you know, three or three and a half points, three and a half percent the interest rates from the fed, the, the, the LIBOR rate means very little. 
Um, so that gives them a competitive advantage in a rising interest rate economy or, or environment. And know, knowing those people and having those relationships to get those, do- those deals done quickly and at, a, at a, a, a very attractive interest rate puts us in Tulsa, Oklahoma at an advantage. Um, and so I think there's, you know, I, it looks bright for us. We have so many investors. We get calls, three, four calls a week that are, you know, hey, I'm looking to buy real estate in Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Um, and, you know, we, there's just no deals to be had for those people. So I'm hopeful that taking uh, that rising interest rates will create more of a, a, a positive environment for purchasing for the for all of our investors that have uh, the desire to do so. And, and many of those will come to us uh, for management, which is positive for us. Um, and then, you know, I'm hopeful that uh, uh, we see kind of a reduction in the supply chain constraints, mitigation or abatement of the of the com- supply <laughs> Uh, supply chain constraints because it's been really painful. I mean, getting windows and doing construction in, a, in an environment like this where stuff ships can't come through Los Angeles ports are really, really painful for us. So I'm hoping that we see a net benefit over time um, from this. And um, I guess that's to the extent I have a crystal ball or, or can, can imagine anything in the future. That's what my, what my small brain foresees. Fair enough. Hey, Matt, this was an absolute 10 for me. Let's do it again. Thanks for everything that you're doing. Thanks for playing the long game. Thanks for being a giver. I appreciate, I appreciate you coming it. on, brother. I appreciate being here. We'll leave Thanks, it there. Jared. See ya. Hey, guys, quick message on the Lead Simple front. We are hiring aggressively into a bunch of different roles right now. Head of customer success, finance and accounting manager, customer implementation pilots, customer success associates, software engineers, all over the place. So my question to you is, do you know somebody? Do you know somebody that might be interested or a fit for one of these roles? You can see the full scope at leadsimple.com forward slash careers. Head of customer success, finance and accounting manager uh, are the ones that we are focused on the most right now. But I'd love to have a conversation about any of these roles. So if you have questions, you can email me at jordan at leadsimple.com to understand the scope, the depth, and to know if anybody in your network might be a fit. We are a live crew, highly competitive, a little bit nerdy, and we love to have a really good time along the way as we work. So if this sounds like a fit for somebody that you know, love to hear from them. Thanks, guys. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me me an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.